Part 2, Chapter 10, Recent Comets, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Carlo, San Clemente, California. A Popular History of Astronomy During the Nineteenth Century by Agnes Mary Clark. Recent Comets, Part 2. An unusually large number of falling stars were seen by Brandes, December 6, 1798. Similar displays were noticed in the years 1830, 1838, and 1847, and the point from which they emanated was shown by Heiss at Aix-la-Chapelle to be situated near the bright star Gamma Andromeda. Now, this is precisely the direction in which the orbit of Biela's comet would seem to lie as it runs down to cut the terrestrial track very near the place of the Earth at the above dates. The inference was, then, an easy one, that the meteors were pursuing the same path with the comet, and it was separately arrived at early in 1867 by Weiss, D'Arrest, and Gala. But Biela travels in the opposite direction to Temple's comet and its attendant Leonids. Its motion is direct, or from west to east, while theirs is retrograde. Consequently, the motion of its node is in the opposite direction, too. In other words, the meeting place of its orbit with that of the Earth retreats, and very rapidly, along the ecliptic instead of advancing so that if the Andromedes stood in the supposed intimate relation to Biela's comet, they might be expected to anticipate the times of their occurrence by as much as a week in half a century. All doubt as to the fact may be said to have been removed by Signor Tezzioli's observation of the annual shower in more than usual abundance at Bergamo, November 30, 1867. The missing comet was next due at perihelion in the year 1872, and the probability was contemplated by both Weiss and Gala of its being replaced by a copious discharge of falling stars. The precise date of the occurrence was not easily determinable, but Gala thought the chances in favor of November 28th. The event anticipated the prediction by 24 hours. Scarcely had the sun set in Western Europe on November 27th when it became evident that Biela's comet was shedding over us the pulverized products of its disintegration. The meteors came in volleys from the foot of the chained lady, their numbers at times baffling the attempt to keep a reckoning. At Moncarlieri, about 8 p.m., they constituted, as Father Densa said, a real rain of fire. Four observers counted, on an average, four hundred each minute and a half, and not a few fireballs, equaling the moon in diameter, traversed the sky. On the whole, however, the stars of 1872, though about equally numerous, were less brilliant than those of 1866. The phosphorescent tracks marking their passage were comparatively evanescent and their movements sluggish. This is easily understood when we remember that the Andromedes overtake the Earth while the Leonids rush to meet it, the velocity of encounter for the first class of bodies being under 12, for the second above 44 miles a second. The spectacle was, nevertheless, magnificent. It presented itself successively to various parts of the Earth, from Bombay and the Mauritius to New Brunswick and Venezuela, and was most diligently and extensively observed. 
here it had well nigh terminated by midnight. It was attended by a slight aurora, and although Tacchini had telegraphed that the state of the sun rendered some show of polar lights probable, it has too often figured as an accompaniment of star showers to permit the coincidence to rank as fortuitous. Admiral Wrangel was accustomed to describe how, during the prevalence of an aurora on the Siberian coast, the passage of a meteor never failed to extend the luminosity to parts of the sky previously dark and an enhancement of electrical disturbance may well be associated with the flittings of such cosmical atoms. A singular incident connected with the meteors of 1872 has now to be recounted. The late Professor Klinkenfuss, who had observed them very completely at Göttingen, was led to believe that not merely the debris strewn along its path, but the comet itself must have been in immediate proximity to the earth during their appearance. If so, it might be possible, he thought, to descry it as it retreated in the diametrically opposite direction from that in which it had approached. On November 30th, accordingly, he telegraphed to Mr. Pogson, the Madras astronomer, Bayella touched earth November 27th, search near theta centauri the anti-radiant as it is called being situated close to that star bad weather prohibited observation during thirty-six hours but when the rain clouds broke on the morning of december second there a comet was just in the indicated position in appearance it might have passed well enough for one of the biela twins it had no tail but a decided nucleus, and was about forty-five seconds across, being thus altogether below the range of naked-eye discernment. It was again observed, December 3rd, when a short tail was perceptible, but overcast skies supervened, and it has never since been seen. Its identity, accordingly, remains in doubt. It seems tolerably certain, however, that it was not the lost comet which ought to have passed that spot twelve weeks earlier, and was subject to no conceivable disturbance capable of delaying to that extent its revolution. On the other hand, there is the strongest likelihood that it belonged to the same system, that it was a third fragment torn from the parent body of the Andromedes at a period anterior to our first observations of it. In thirteen years, Biela's comet, or its relics, travels nearly twice round its orbit, so that a renewal of the meteoric shower of 1872 was looked for on the same day of the year 1885, the probability being emphasized by an admonitory circular from Dunecht. Astronomers were accordingly on the alert, and were not disappointed. In England, observation was partially impeded by clouds, but at Malta, Palermo, Beirut, and other southern stations, the scene was most striking. The meteors were both larger and more numerous than in 1872. Their numbers in the densest part of the drift were estimated by Professor Newton at 75,000 per hour, visible from one spot to so large a group of spectators that practically none could be missed. Yet each of these multitudinous little bodies was found by him to travel in a clear cubical space of which the edge measured twenty miles. Thus the dazzling effects of a luminous throng was produced without jostling or overcrowding by particles. 
it might also be said isolated in the void. Their aspect was strongly characteristic of the Andromeda family of meteors. They invariably, Mr. Denning wrote, traversed short paths with very slow motions and became extinct in evolved streams of yellowish sparks. The conclusion seemed obvious that these meteors are formed of very soft materials which expand while incalescent and are immediately crumbled and dissipated into exiguous dust. The Biela meteors of 1885 did not merely gratify astronomers with a fulfilled prediction, but were the means of communicating to them some valuable information. Although their main body was cut through by the moving Earth in six hours and was not more than 100,000 miles across, skirmishers were thrown out to nearly a million miles on either side of the compact central battalions. Members of the system were, on the 26th of November, recorded by Mr. Denning at the hourly rate of about 130, and they did not wholly cease to be visible until December 1st. They afforded, besides, a particularly well-marked example of that diffuseness of radiation previously observed in some less conspicuous displays. Their paths seemed to diverge from an area rather than from a point in the sky. They came so ill to focus that divergences of several degrees were found between the most authentically determined radiance. These incongruities are attributed by Professor Newton to the irregular shape of the meteoroids producing unsymmetrical resistance from the air, and hence causing them to glance from their original direction on entering it. Thus, their luminous tracks did not always represent, even apart from the effects of the Earth's attraction, the true prolongation of their course through space. The Andromedes of 1872 were laggards behind the comet from which they sprang. Those of 1885 were its avant couriers. That wasted and disrupted body was not due at the node until January 26, 1886, sixty days, that is, after the Earth's encounter with its meteoric fragments. These are now probably scattered over more than 500 million miles of its orbits. Yet Professor Newton considers that all must have formed one compact group with Biela at the time of its close approach to Jupiter about the middle of 1841, for otherwise both comet and meteorites could not have experienced, as they seem to have done, the same kind and amount of disturbance. The rapidity of cometary disintegration is thus curiously illustrated. A short-lived persuasion that the missing heavenly body itself had been recovered was created by Mr. Edwin Holmes's discovery, at London, November 6, 1892, of a tolerably bright, tailless comet, just in a spot which Biela's comet must have traversed in approaching the intersection of its orbit with that of the Earth. A hasty calculation by Beberich assigned elements to the newcomer seemingly not only to ratify the identity, but to promise a quasi-encounter with the Earth on November 21st. The only effect of the prediction, however, was to raise a panic among the Negroes of the southern states of America. The comet quietly ignored it and moved away from, instead of towards, the appointed meeting place. Its projection, then, on the night of its discovery, upon a point of the Biela orbit, was by a mere caprice of chance. North America, nevertheless, 
was visited on November 23rd by a genuine Andromeda shower. Although the meteors were less numerous than in 1885, Professor Young estimated that 30,000 at the least of their orange fire streaks came, during five hours, within the range of view at Princeton. Bredichin estimated the width of the space containing them at about 2,700,000 miles. The anticipation of their due time by four days implied, if they were a prolongation of the main Biela group, the nucleus of which passed the spot of encounter five months previously, a recession of the node since 1885 by no less than three degrees. Unless, indeed, Mr. Denning were right in supposing the display to have proceeded from an associated branch of the main swarm through which we passed in 1872 and 1885. The existence of separated detachments of Biela meteors due to disturbing planetary action was contemplated as highly probable by Schiaparelli. Such may have been the belated flights met with in 1830, 1838, 1841, and 1847, and such the advance flight plunged through in 1892. A shower looked for November 23, 1899, did not fall, and no further display from this quarter is probable until November 17, 1905, although one is possible a year earlier. The Leonids, through the adverse influence of Jupiter and Saturn, inflicted upon multitudes of eager watchers a still more poignant disappointment. A dense part of the swarm, having nearly completed a revolution since 1866, should, traveling normally, have met the Earth November 15, 1899. In point of fact, it swerved sunward, and the millions of meteorites which would otherwise have been sacrificed for the illumination of our skies escaped a fiery doom. The contingency had been forecast in the able calculations of Dr. Johnstone Stoney and Dr. A. M. W. Downing, superintendent of the Nautical Almanac Office, but the verification scarcely compensated the failure. Nor was the situation retrieved in the following years. Only ragged fringes of the great tempest cloud here and there touched our globe. As the same investigators warned us to expect, the course of the meteorites had been not only rendered sinuous by perturbation, but also broken and irregular. We can no longer count upon the Leonids. Their glory, for scenic purposes, is departed. The comet associated with them also evaded observation, Although it doubtless kept its tryst with the sun in the spring of 1899, the attendant circumstances were too unfavorable to allow it to be seen from the earth. By an almost fantastic coincidence, nevertheless, a faint comet was photographed November 14, 1898, by Dr. Chase of the Yale College Observatory, close to the Leonid radiant, whither a meteorograph was directed with a view to recording trails left by precursors of the main Leonid body. A promising start, too, was made on the same occasion with meteoric researches from sensitive plates. Indeed, Chebelet and Colton had already, in 1896, determined the height of a Leonid by means of photographs taken at stations on different ridges of Mount Hamilton, and Professor Pickering has prosecuted similar work at Harvard, with encouraging results. Everything in this branch of science depends upon how far they can be carried. 
without the meteorograph rigid accuracy in the observation of shooting stars is unattainable and rigid accuracy is the sine qua non for obtaining exact knowledge biela does not offer the only example of cometary disruption setting aside the unauthentic reports of early chroniclers we meet the double comet discovered by Liet at Olinda, Brazil, February 27, 1860, of which the division appeared recent and about to be carried farther. But a division once established, separation must continually progress. The periodic times of the fragments will never be identical. One must drop a little behind the other at each revolution until at length they come to travel in remote parts of nearly the same orbit. Thus the comet predicted by Klinkerfus and discovered by Pogson had already lagged to the extent of twelve weeks, and we shall meet instances farther on where the retardation is counted not by weeks, but by years. Here original identity emerges only from calculation and comparison of orbits comets then die as kepler wrote long ago sicut bombisis filo fundendo this certainty anticipated by kirkwood in 1861 we have at least acquired from the discovery of their generative connection with meteors nay their actual materials become in smaller or larger proportions incorporated with our globe it is not, indeed, universally admitted that the ponderous masses of which, according to Dabre's estimate, at least 600 fall annually from space upon the Earth, ever formed part of the bodies known to us as comets. Some follow Chermak in attributing to aerolites a totally different origin from that of periodical shooting stars. That no clear line of demarcation can be drawn is no valid reason for asserting that no real distinction exists. And it is certainly remarkable that a meteoric fusillade may be kept up for hours without a single solid projectile reaching its destination. It would seem as if the celestial army had been supplied with blank cartridges. Yet, since a few detonating meteors have been found to proceed from ascertained radiance of shooting stars, it is difficult to suppose that any generic difference separates them. Their assimilation is further urged, though not with any demonstrative force, by two instances, the only two on record, of the tangible descent of an aerolite during the progress of a star shower. On April 4, 1095, the Saxon Chronicle informs us that stars fell so thickly that no man could count them, and adds that one of them having struck the ground in France, a bystander cast water upon it, which was raised in steam with a great noise of boiling. And again, on November 27, 1885, while the skirts of the Andromeda tempest were trailing over Mexico, a ball of fire was precipitated from the sky at Mazapil within view of a ranchman. Scientific examination proved it to be a siderite, or mass of nickel-iron. Its weight exceeded eight pounds, and it contained many nodules of graphite. We are not, however, authorized by the circumstances of its arrival to regard the Mazapil fragment of cosmic metal as a specimen torn from Biela's comet. In this, as in the preceding case, the coincidence of the fall with the shower may have been purely causal, 
since no hint is given of any sort of agreement between the tracks followed by the sample provided for curious study and the swarming meteors consumed in the upper air professor newton's inquiries into the tracks pursued by meteorites previous to their collisions with the earth tend to distinguish them at least specifically from shooting stars he found that nearly all had been traveling with a direct movement in orbits the perihelia of which lay in the outer half of the space separating the earth from the sun shooting stars on the contrary are entirely exempt from such limitations the yale professor concluded that the larger meteorites moving in our solar system are allied much more closely with the group of comets of short period than with the comets whose orbits are nearly parabolic. They would thus seem to be more at home than might have been expected amid the planetary family. Father Carbonell has, moreover, shown that meteorites, if explosion products of the Earth or Moon, should, with rare exceptions, follow just the kind of paths assigned to them from data of observation by Professor Newton. Yet it is altogether improbable that projectiles from terrestrial volcanoes should, at any geological epoch, have received impulses powerful enough to enable them not only to surmount the Earth's gravity, but to penetrate its atmosphere. A striking, indeed an almost startling, peculiarity, on the other hand, divides from their congeners a class of meteors identified by Mr. Denning during ten years' patient watching of such phenomena at Bristol. These are described as meteors with stationary radiance, since for months together they seem to come from the same fixed points in the sky. Now, this implies quite a portentous velocity. The direction of meteor radiance is affected by a kind of aberration analogous to the aberration of light. It results from a composition of terrestrial with meteoric motion. Hence, unless that of the Earth in its orbit be, by comparison, insignificant, the visual line of encounter must shift, if not perceptibly from day to day, at any rate conspicuously from month to month. The fixity, then, of many systems observed by Mr. Denning seems to demand the admission that their members travel so fast as to throw the Earth's movement completely out of the account. The required velocity would be, by Mr. Raynard's calculation, at least 880 miles a second, but the aspect of the meteors justifies no such extravagant assumption. Their seeming swiftness is very various, and what is highly significant, it is notably less when they pursue than when they meet the Earth. Yet the incredible and unaccountable fact of the existence of these long radiants, although doubted by Tisserand because of its theoretical refractoriness, must apparently be admitted. The first plausible explanation of them was offered by Professor Turner in 1899. They represent, in his view, the cumulative effects of the Earth's attraction. The validity of his reasoning is, however, denied by Monsieur Berrichin, who prefers to regard them as a congeries of separate streams. The enigma they present has evidently not yet received its definitive solution. The Perseids afford, on the contrary, a remarkable instance of a shifting radiant. 
Mr. Denning's observations of these yellowish leisurely meteors extend over nearly six weeks, from July 8th to August 16th, the point of radiation meantime progressing no less than 57 degrees in right ascension. Doubts as to their common origin were hence freely expressed, especially by Mr. Monk of Dublin. But the late Dr. Kleiber showed, by strict geometrical reasoning, that the 49 radiants successively determined for the shower were all, in fact, comprised within one narrowly limited region of space. In other words, the application of the proper correction for the terrestrial movement and the effects of attraction by which each individual shooting star is compelled to describe a hyperbola round the Earth's center reduces the extended line of radiance to a compact group with the cometary radiant for its central point, the cometary radiant being the spot in the sky met by a tangent to the orbit of the Perseid comet of 1862 at its intersection with the orbit of the Earth. The reality of the connection between the comet and the meteors could scarcely be more clearly proved. While the vast dimensions of the stream into which the latter are found to be diffused cannot but excite astonishment not unmixed with perplexity. The first successful application of the spectroscope to comets was by Donati in 1864. A comet discovered by Temple, July 4th, brightened until it appeared like a star somewhat below the second magnitude with a feeble tail thirty degrees in length. It was remarkable as having, on August 7th, almost totally eclipsed a small star, a very rare occurrence. On August 5th, Donati admitted its light through his train of prisms and found it, thus analyzed, to consist of three bright bands, yellow, green, and blue, separated by wider, dark intervals. This implied a good deal. Comets had previously been considered, as we have seen, to shine mainly, if not wholly, by reflected sunlight. They were now perceived to be self-luminous and to be formed, to a large extent, of glowing gas. The next step was to determine what kind of gas it was that was thus glowing in them, and this was taken by Sir William Huggins in 1868. A comet of subordinate brilliancy, known as Comet 1868-2, or sometimes as Vinica's, was the subject of his experiment. On comparing its spectrum with that of an oleophant gas vacuum tube rendered luminous by electricity, he found the agreement exact. It has since been abundantly confirmed. All the 18 comets tested by light analysis between 1868 and 1880 showed the typical hydrocarbon spectrum common to the whole group of those compounds, but probably due immediately to the presence of acetylene. Some minor deviations from the laboratory pattern in the shifting of the maxima of light from the edge towards the middle of the yellow and blue bands have been experimentally reproduced by Fogel and Hasselberg in tubes containing a mixture of carbonic oxide with oleophant gas. Their illumination by disruptive electric discharges was, however, a condition sine qua non for the exhibition of the cometary type of spectrum. When a continuous current was employed, the carbonic oxide bands asserted themselves to the exclusion of the hydrocarbons. The distinction has great significance as regards the nature of comets. Of particular interest in this connection 
is the circumstance that carbonic oxide is one of the gases evolved by meteoric stones and irons under stress of heat. For it must apparently have formed part of an aeriform mass in which they were immersed at an early stage of their history. In a few exceptional comets, the usual carbon bands have been missed. Two such were observed by Sir William Huggins in 1866 and 1867, respectively. In each, a green ray, approximating in position to the fundamental nebular line, crossed an otherwise unbroken spectrum. And Holmes's comet of 1892 displayed only a faint prismatic band devoid of any characteristic feature. Now these three might well be set down as partially effete bodies, but a brilliant comet, visible in southern latitudes in April and May 1901, so far resembled them in the quality of its light as to give a spectrum mainly, if not purely, continuous. This, accordingly, is no symptom of decay. The earliest comet of first-class luster to present itself for spectroscopic examination was that discovered by Coggia at Marseille, April 17, 1874. Invisible to the naked eye till June, it blazed out in July a splendid ornament of our northern skies with a just perceptibly curved tail reaching more than halfway from the horizon to the zenith and a nucleus surpassing in brilliancy the brightest stars in the swan. Bredichin, Fogel, and Huygens were unanimous in pronouncing its spectrum to be that of marsh or oleophant gas. Father Secchi, in the clear sky of Rome, was able to push the identification even closer than had heretofore been done. The complete hydrocarbon spectrum consists of five zones of variously colored light. Three of these only, the three central ones, had till then been obtained from comets, owing, it was supposed, to their temperature not being high enough to develop the others. The light of Kogia's comet, however, was found to contain all five traces of the violet band emerging June 4th, of the red July 2nd. Presumably, all five would show universally in cometary spectra were the dispersed rays strong enough to enable them to be seen. The gaseous surroundings of comets are, then, largely made up of a compound of hydrogen with carbon. Other materials are also present, but the hydrocarbon element is probably unfailing and predominant. Its luminosity is, there is little doubt, an effect of electrical excitement. Zollner showed in 1872 that, owing to evaporation and other changes produced by rapid approach to the sun, electrical processes of considerable intensity must take place in comets, and that their original light is immediately connected with these and depends upon solar radiation rather through its direct or indirect electrifying effects than through its more obvious thermal power, may be considered a truth permanently acquired to science. They are not, it thus seems, bodies incandescent through heat, but glowing by electricity, and this is compatible under certain circumstances with a relatively low temperature. The gaseous spectrum of comets is accompanied, in varying degrees, by a continuous spectrum. This is usually derived most strongly from the nucleus, but extends more or less to the nebulous appendages. In part, it is certainly due to reflected sunlight, in part most likely to the ignition of minute solid 
particles. End of Part 2, Chapter 10, Recent Comets, Part 2. Recording by Aaron Carlo in San Clemente, California.